Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Day of daylight savings time. For those of you who actually made it out of bed, give yourselves a hand. It's so good to see you here. Uh, and to all of you who are joining us from online, especially if you're a guest with us, either in the building or on the other side of that camera, my name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for braving the cold and coming, even though you feel just a tad jet-lagged. Uh, I hope and pray that it, you will find it worth the trip to have worshiped the Lord Jesus together. And so we're in Revelation chapter 15, very last book of the Bible. We're picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we're going to talk about a, a hard subject today. Uh, we've been through some things that have been quite puzzling to us. To us. This may be uh, the one thing that's the hardest sometimes for some people to get their minds wrapped around. Uh, we're we're going to observe some teaching today that is really often misunderstood, often stereotyped, and probably the most challenged by those who struggle with whether or not Christian faith can actually be true. We're going to talk about this subject today of the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? In our age, many times when you mention that word wrath of God, it triggers people. They immediately think of the fire and brimstone preacher who's red-faced and pounding and spitting and doing all those things. And then still others, they would have reasonable questions around this. If God is love, as 1 John 4 very plainly teaches, if his desire, furthermore, and Peter tells us this, he, he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come into repentance, then, then why does he exhibit wrath toward people that he claims to love? Why, why does that happen? And, and truthfully, we have confessions in the church that explain what we believe, but they don't really explain the rationale why we believe those things. And so they're not really of, of much help in, in this regard. Uh, we're a multi-denominational body at Covenant, but our roots are Baptist, and that takes us all the way back to the 17th century to the Second London Confession, which actually makes this a little harder to digest. It says, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. In other words, some people are saved, other people are damned, and God our creator is glorified in both. We believe that at Covenant, but we also understand that someone may at least initially kind of wretch at that and go, why does it have to be that way? Why is God like that if in fact he is really like that? And that, that's the biggest struggle I've observed, particularly among people who, who wonder if Christianity is really legitimate. Why would God judge people? Why would the one who is loved pour out his wrath? And more specifically, uh, the kind of wrath that we are about to see when we get to chapter 16 and 17. That doesn't come until next week, but, but there's some really awful stuff. In fact, I would venture to say if we weren't already so desensitized by some of the violence and the gore in our own culture's media, we might have a hard time reading this and getting through it together. That's just how graphic it is. And so you step back from that and you go, that is awful and gross. And why does it have to be punitive? And are these really the actions of a loving God? I get that struggle. 
because I've had it myself. And so what I want to do today is just two things. Number one, I want to define wrath. This is just by way of introduction because that's basically what all of chapter 15 is. It's an introduction into chapter 16 and 17. It's preparing us in many ways for what's coming so that we're not so jarred by it that the message doesn't sink in. So let's talk about what we're talking about. What is wrath? Number two, let's describe the context of wrath that is about to be described. And I think chapter 15 helps us do that well because, again, it's basically an interlude. It's as if John's hitting the pause button before going forward. So let, let's start with the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Last summer, Amy and I, after a long season of COVID, decided that it was finally wise enough for us to go back to a movie theater. How many of you remember your first trip back into the movie theater? For how many of you was that less impressive than you hoped it might be? Because it was for us as well. Because we hadn't thought about the fact that, for one thing, Hollywood hadn't been producing anything either, very little of quality. But there was one flick that kind of stood out to me, and just forgive your pastor in advance for this, but I like movies with bullets and stuff blowing up. I just do. And, and so we, we saw this movie advertised uh, that was starred, starred Jason Statham, who is like the coolest dude on the planet, Like. He can kill you and not make a mess of it, you know. I, I, I don't know. I just like stuff like that. Maybe there's some sin to repent of in there. I don't know. I'm, I'm working through that. But the title of this movie was The Wrath of Man, and it was true to its title. Now, it wasn't, I would say, I, I would not commend it. it the, the content was far worse than I anticipated. I don't know what I was thinking. It's a Jason Statham movie. Of course, it's going to have horrible, but I wasn't thinking about that. I'm just like, hey, let's go back to the movies. And, and so we, we saw the film, but it, was just, it just wasn't a very good movie. But what it did accurately portray was what was indicated in the title, The Wrath of Man. It was, it was unreasonable. It was, there were things that happened to him and his family. And so because we have this sort of internal clock, this sense of justice, we're expecting him to get to avenge their deaths and all that. And we take some satisfaction in that. And because it's Jason Statham, the way he does it is always so cool. The way he kills people is always so cool, all right? But it was just like, you ever sat in a movie once and you just went, oh, like that's what we did. Like we almost had to walk out like, this is horrible. It's unreasonable. It's disproportional. It's unjust. It's over the top anger toward another person. That's generally, is it not what we think about when we think about the word wrath? And that's important because there's a distinction here. The wrath of man is not the wrath of God. In fact, several weeks ago on social media, I asked this question. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word wrath? Would you like to hear some of your responses? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Here were just, just a few. My dad after I did something stupid. My 12th grade calculus teacher. John Steinbeck novels. Uh, a number of you were just snarky, and you sent me variations of a picture of William Shatner yelling, Khan. Some of the Trekkies will get that one. But the biggest, most frequent response I got were these words, uncontrollable anger. Well, if that's how you define wrath when you ascribe it to God, then no wonder your understanding of the wrath of God doesn't make any sense. Listen, God's wrath, and we're going to see this in the coming verses, is not this intense, uncontrollable, emotional flare-up. 
God, brothers and sisters, never has and he never will lose control of his emotions the way you and I do because he is perfectly righteous and pure. And as a result, God never has and never will overreact. Never going to happen. Never has happened. God doesn't do that. That's not the wrath of God. Well, how, how do you define wrath of God? I have yet to improve upon the definition given by New Testament scholar Leon Morris, who describes it this way. God's wrath is a strong, settled opposition to all that is evil, arising out of God's very nature, a burning zeal for right compared with perfect hatred. Well, I thought hate was a bad word. Not always. Hatred for everything that is evil. And because we're created in his image, we, we feel little slivers of this. We never quite experience it perfectly because we're fallen, but we, we, we learn, if you learn that a small child is being abused, when you learn that there's some cowardly man out there beating up his wife, when you learn about unfair treatment that some people receive uh, from our own justice system, and you, you, you as a sinner can go, that's not right. And you kind of feel that anger welling up in you. The outrage you feel in that brief moment is a reflection of the God in whose image you are created. It is his perfect, permanent, settled opposition to all wrong. Here's the difference. Our, our, our outrage comes and goes, okay? And for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's limited because I only have so much wrath in me. Thank God for that. Right? I only got so much. And then after that, I had one of those really hard weeks a few weeks ago, and I'm not whining. It's a pastor's job to handle stuff like this. It's a great honor to deal with this, but just at counseling sessions and people dealing with sicknesses and relationship dysfunction, and just one, it, it had just been one of those weeks. One thing piled right on top of another, really, really hard week. And so I was just thanking God for a little bit of rest, be able to sleep. It's Friday night, well into Saturday morning, well after the sun came up, my wife and I are still laying in bed together. She's reading the morning paper on her phone, and she goes, babe, have you seen what happened in Russia recently? And I just rolled over and looked at her, and I said, baby, I got no bandwidth for anything else bad. You ever been there? Like, I can't handle it. It's not that those people don't matter. It's not that I don't care. It, I can't. I got nothing. So my wrath is limited, and it's unstable right? It's unstable. God's settled opposition carries two characteristics with it. Number one, it is permanent. It never stops. Brothers and sisters, there is never a time, never a time when God looks at injustice and sin and says, ah, that's not so bad. No big deal. Here's the other characteristic. It is exhaustive. Every evil. See, we, we're selective even when we don't mean to be. Sometimes, most of the time, can we just be honest, we mean to be selective, right? We'll aim our wrath at people we don't like. We'll give grace to people that we like, that kind of thing. God sees every evil, every injustice, and his hatred of it is perfect. And what we find in Revelation 15 is this powerful description of that wrath. But even before we get there, I want to describe the literary context of this. Because this description is, is couched within some imagery that's important to understand, or you're going to miss what John is, is communicating here. So let's back up about, let's say, about 10,000 foot level, and let's remember that there, the, although there are about to be seven bowls, there have already been seven seals and seven trumpets. 
And seven's a significant number in apocalyptic literature. It means completeness. And so three sevens means complete completeness. And the closer you examine and compare the three, the more obvious these similarities become. And I'm just going to throw this graphic up to give you an example of that. If you look at chapter 8, verse 7, compare it with chapter 16, verse 2, you, you see God's judgments on the earth in both of those sections. Chapter 8, verse 8, compared with chapter 16, verse 3, God's judgment on the sea. Chapter 8, verse 10, compared with chapter 16, verse 14, God's judgment on the fresh water. You, you starting to see this? So forth and so on. This is stuff happening over and over and over. It's not things that are happening one right after the other. This goes back to what I said earlier. Don't try to understand Revelation as linear. This is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, or you're going to end up with all kind of kooky stuff like the locusts or Apache helicopters, and they're going to install a chip in my forehead. Okay, That's not what this means. This, and the reason we know it doesn't mean that is because it's not written in linear fashion and so we can't understand it like that because it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. There you go. It has to mean to us what it meant to the original hearers. And they would have recognized John is using a literary tool here called recapitulation. Recapitulation is a literary technique. That's all it is. And it's a, it's a technique where you and I are brought all the way up to what seems to be the end of the story, and, and we're ready for the credits to roll, but then the story starts back over again. And it's told again in a different way or from a different angle. Anybody seen a Lord of the Rings movie? You have experienced recapitulation. It makes me crazy. It really does. I'm sitting there with my popcorn. And, and I'm, I, I can enjoy a good movie just like anybody else. And you, you watch this. And you, I mean, you've already been in there forever. Right? And, and, and what happens? They storm the castle. Good has triumphed over evil. You're like, man, this was awesome. And then you're ready for the credits to roll. And then Frodo out the back door. And you're like, I've been in this theater four days. When's this going to end? All right? That's recapitulation. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in Revelation. Back up four chapters and we read the following. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I don't know about you, but when I read a statement like that, I expect to turn the page and find the index. But no, I turn the page and he goes, all right, now let me tell you about the woman and the child and the dragon. And you're like, well, what's going on? Recapitulation is what's going on, okay? It happens over and over and over again. Here's the distinction. It's not one of events of happening, one happening right after the other. It's one of perspective. And so when you read of the seals, you are seeing the judgment of God from the perspective of his people, the church. Then later on when you see the trumpets, you're seeing the judgment of God from the perspective of those on the earth what we are about to see is the most graphic view of judgment, God's own view of it. And it is so graphic, in fact, and so horrible that it has to have an interlude and a warning and a whole chapter, in fact, chapter 15, to say to us, before we get there, let's talk about this. Let's get ourselves ready for this emotionally. Let's get ourselves, let's get our souls in the right default mode to be able to absorb it. And that's what chapter 15 is, yet another interlude that is preparing us for John's description of the wrath of God. And there are three descriptors of this wrath. Number one, God's wrath will be finished. 
One day it will come to an end. Verse 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. The word plague is a translation of the same Hebrew term used to describe God's judgment on Egypt and, and God's John's Jewish readers, well, they've already been using this word, this Greek term, for about 300 years, so they would have immediately recognized it. It it just means a blow caused by a lash to them. This would have been a metaphor for punishment. And the blows these angels are holding are about to be unleashed against large portions of humanity. So when we get to chapter 16 next week and we start looking at this in detail, we see that they're contained in what you may have a translation that says bowls. If you've got a more accurate translation, it's actually, it says chalice, like a, something you would hold a cup of wine in. And each chalice is being filled, after which each angel is commanded to pour the judgment that it contains on the earth. And this vision that John tells us is a sign, an indication both of the certainty and the completeness of divine wrath against all ungodliness. And it presents us with this really interesting comparison. With these, we are told the wrath of God is finished. That's the same language Jesus used in John 19 when from the cross he cries out, it is finished. The bearing of the wrath of God for the sins of those who would believe on the cross, it was finally complete. And and so understand this word finished in the same way that Jesus intended it from the cross. It is a cry of triumph even from a place of execution and defeat. This too is a cry of triumph. John reveals here to the church, God will balance the scales of justice. The wrath of God is finished. That's good news. Now it's hard to see it as good news because again, we have these kind of contorted views of wrath. And secondly, the, the, the more comfortable you are, the more difficult it is to get your head wrapped around this stuff. Right? If I'm sitting at home, watching an NFL game, or a few months from now, watching an MLB game, because to me, no, no offense meant to you basketball fans, but to me, that's just a break in between football and baseball season, and that's all it is, right? But, but if I'm sitting on the couch with my, my big old bag of popcorn, I'm watching a game in relative comfort, I, and I think about concepts like this, the way culture has taught me to think about them, I'm probably going to go in the wrong direction, but if I'm If I'm in the same position as this first century group of churches that John is addressing, can you imagine how encouraging this news had to be for those congregations who had no legal recourse for what was occurring and happening to them in ancient Rome? Can you imagine how encouraging that might be today, even to our Ukrainian brothers and sisters? And 2,000 years later, maybe we don't quite understand it from our place of relative comfort, but not all of us are there, are we? I don't even have to ask or know the stories in front of me or or on the other side of that camera. All I have to do is look at the statistics and say, some of you need this same encouragement today. There's been abuse. There's been betrayal. There's been suppressed truth. You are frustrated. You are angry. You are wounded. You might even be afraid. I've said this several times. Maybe it was even compounded by the failure of a church to stand with you as you pursue justice. But in so many cases, you have discovered man, this world's just never going to deliver on righteousness. It's just never going to happen. I, I mean, not even in, in America. I made fun of some of these oppression narratives the other week. I meant to do it because they're stupid. America's full of oppression and it's full of it. Listen, if you're typing that on your iPad, you just need to hush, okay? 
I, I think we've got one of the greatest systems of justice in the history of the world, but it's still not perfect, is it? It's still not perfect. Still got to be tinkered with. If you don't believe me, ask any rape victim whose perpetrator walked on a technicality. Ask any person of color in this room who's ever had to fight an uphill, uneven battle in a criminal court. Ask any business owner who is a member of this congregation who has had their business destroyed or negatively affected by overwhelming government bureaucracy. And they will tell you, yeah, this stuff is real. And as ironic as it may sound, what John is telling us here is our only hope is in the wrath of God. He's going to balance the scales. He's going to make it right. Our only hope, our means of perseverance is in remembering that above all of this, there is a creator who settled an unmovable opposition to every sliver of evil that exists in this world will one day make everything right. The wrath of God will be finished. And because of that, the nations will worship. John goes on in verse 2, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. We saw this glass, this glass sea back in chapter 4, verse 6. It's, there's this added description now of fire on it as a sign of judgment. And, and God's people are standing next to it, worshiping, John tells us plainly, with a song reminiscent of that which Moses and Israel sang way back in Exodus chapter 15. And so to understand something of what's going on here, we need to remember what happened back in Exodus. Israel is standing in that moment of rejoicing, and you know what they're watching? They're watching the Red Sea close up. They're watching the most powerful man in the world at that time, Pharaoh, drowned in the bottom of that sea, along with his entire military force. After the entire ecosystem, the economy, everything that required the, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth to continue to exist was crumbled in the plagues. They are watching all of this, and they're worshiping God as a result of the end of injustice. It's okay to be angry at injustice. It's okay to desire that the scales be balanced, and it is proper to worship God when we see him bring that balance. That's what we learn here. But the picture here, this is a final picture, and there's a couple of things about it. First is the wrath of God is both right and true. He says in verse 3, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. It's right. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is true. Number two, everyone will eventually be brought to give God what is his. Verse four, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Paul reminds us of that, doesn't he? In the latter part of Philippians chapter two, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And see, this is our problem when it comes to the wrath of God. It's not that we don't believe in justice because we do, for ourselves. <laughs> it's not that we don't believe in justice. It's not that we don't believe that bad things sometimes need to happen as a response to bad people and other bad things in the world. I've actually, believe it or not, met very few universalists in my life. People who believe, well, eventually everybody makes it to heaven. I don't know that many people that are that dumb. 
I, I don't. And, I, and Because w- once they reason their way through it and they know there's evil in the world and they know it, it's like, I mean, everybody eventually comes up, well, there, there has to be something resembling a doctrine of hell. Otherwise, what do we do with Hitler at the end of the age? What do we do with Paul Pot? What do we do with Putin? What do we do with all these dictators? And what do we do with what do we do with child molesters who 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 don't repent? What do we what do we do with these people? If there's not some kind of punishment, that, that's not really the issue. The issue is when we seek to be God's judge on whether the punishment fits the crime. And the reason, let me tell you why we do that. It's because we use the same standard for the creator that we do for the created. And that's where we get ourselves in trouble. Okay, that, that's not wrong when it comes to judging authorities on the earth. Okay? If my 21-year-old son were to come home with a sheepish look on his face and a citation in his hand because he tried to pull off a Hollywood stop in Shepherdstown and didn't get away with it, okay? and Sam would never do this because he's got his own really good sense of justice. He's a great kid. But, but if he were one of those whiny kids that were like, I got two more that might meet that later on. But the one, he's not, yeah, I'm not saying I got perfect kids. I'm just, y'all know how it works, right? They all got strengths and weaknesses. Sam's weakness is generally not to whine. But if he were to do that, and it's not fair, and I can't believe it, and, and, and y'all have heard the, the typical kind of response, man, there's murderers and rapists and all that, and they got to pull me over for a Hollywood stop. You know what his daddy's going to say? Don't want a ticket? Don't roll through a stop sign in Shepherdstown, dummy. Right? There's a sense of justice there. You know it's the law, that sign. It's, it, you, you literally want to argue with a stop sign? It's right there. What does it say? Stop, not slow down, not tap the brakes, not make sure you stop. You make all the arguments you want about how, well, it's just a fundraiser. Hey, it's the law. Don't want to get a ticket? Stop right? But if I get a call that he's in the emergency room and I go to the ER and I find my son handcuffed to a hospital bed with bloodied, bruised eyes and broken bones and he looks at me and he says, Daddy, I, I promise you I pulled over, I put both hands on the wheel, I did everything they told me to do. They drew down on me. They dragged me out of the car. I think maybe they thought I was somebody else. It was a big mistake, but, Dad, they pulled me out. They threw me to the ground. They beat me. Well, now I want somebody's badge, and you do too, don't you? You do too. Why is that? Because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. You don't do that to somebody for rolling through a stop sign, right? Amen? Yeah. We love police officers around here, but wearing a badge don't make you right in everything you do. We know that too, don't we? There's an ultimate standard of righteousness that we're all called toward, okay? So there's a sense in which you go, all right, that was just, that was good. This is the law. Stop it. Just obey. And there's another sense in which we, well, well, why is it okay to have that conversation? Because we're talking about other human beings who are fallen, who need to be held accountable. All of that is true. Here's where we make our mistake, we start transposing that same attitude up into God. You think about the wrath of God against all evil, and you go, wait a minute, for that? He's going to send somebody to hell for that? I mean, I I might not have been, I I mean, what I've done might have been wrong, 
But it is surely not worth the kind of punishment I see in chapter 16 and 17. And here's, here's what we learn from this part of the passage. The redeemed witnessed the emergence of the angels and the presentation of the bowls and the filling of those bowls with judgment and without even seeing what's in them, without even knowing what comes next, the default of their soul is God is right and he is true and he is just and we do not question him. That's the starting point, right? If you want to judge the wrath of God rightly, that's the first question. Is that the default of your soul? My God doesn't overreact. My God doesn't allow his emotions to get out of control. That's not who he is. Is this your default? If not, you're going to have a warped view of God, which means you're going to have a warped view of his justice. And you're not going to be able to understand this last thing, which is that God's glory will be displayed. Verse 5, after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So let's get this. Let's, let's, let's get our heads wrapped around this. The, the Hebrew scriptures often speak of God's presence with the symbolism of a cloud or smoke. We see this on top of Sinai when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, several other places in Scripture. So John's invoking that imagery here to present the presence of a God in all of his power and glory who is ready to execute judgment on wickedness wherever he finds it. And here's the key. No one enters that tent until that is done. God's judgment on wickedness and sin must be finished or else no one makes it into his presence. And it's with these closing verses of chapter 15 that this stage is set, and it is made very clear who is doing this to the world. Yeah, no, nobody's doing theodicy here. Nobody's, well, there, there's, you know, no, nobody's playing the free will argument. Well, you know, God's a gentleman. If you're going to do this, we're no, there's no, there is no attempt to get God off the hook. There's just simply a declaration. And, and remember what I said? The seals are the perspective of the church. The, the trumpets are the perspective of the people on the earth that are inhabiting the earth at that time. This, is, which is about to happen, is from the perspective of the throne of God. And so the verses we just read is God sitting on his throne in advance of what's coming going, yep, I did that. I did that. I'm not going to hide behind anything. This is who I am. This is what is coming. I did that. And I'm right to do it. Yeah, that's our problem when it comes to our struggle. We, we want to use the same standard of judgment that we use on each other. And that's why we have this view of wrath that is so jacked up. Don't treat God like he's other people. Don't do that. And that's the message that we get here from John. Don't treat him that way. He is not, it is not because he is unjust that he does this. Okay? Every time we see a picture in Scripture of a holy, righteous God whose holiness by default, both naturally, predictably, and constantly overwhelms and decimates evil wherever he finds it, 
He's not doing that because he's unjust. He's doing it because he's infinitely more consistent than you and I are. And you want to look at that and stand back and judge it? You want to watch God do these things and go, I think I'd have handled that differently. Well, of course you would have because you're a sinner and you would have jacked it up and made it worse. And so would I. But yet, we go on, don't we? I just can't believe God would do this. Look at these graphically horrible things in the following chapters. Man, what kind of God allows this? What kind of God blesses this? What kind of God approves of this and executes it? I could never worship a God who, whoa, 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 careful. Careful. If monotheism is correct, which would not just include you and me, it would include our Muslim and our Jewish friends, that means that there is one and only one God, and there are no other alternatives. So be careful taking your soul to a place where you would dare utter a a sentence like, I could never worship a God who, there may not be another option for you. And Scripture just told you, there is no other option for you. This is the God who has revealed himself to you. You're either going to believe he's true and right and just, or or you're not. You don't get to create another God. That is madness. Whatever gods you create doesn't exist. You're worshiping the air. Listen, I, I understand the struggle. Been there myself, will probably be there many, many more times before I die. And, and if you, by the way, if you instantly rejoice over the wrath of God, specifically the kind that we read about in the coming verses, there's something wrong with you. I've met people like that. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I can't wait for fire to consume my enemies. I think think you've missed the part where you are complicit as well in the sin curse. I think you missed that. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, said if you can preach about God's judgment without tears, you're not qualified to speak of God's judgment. So there's a way to be a person and talk about this. But this interlude is given, at least in part, to, to help us check our attitude toward our creator before we read on. Otherwise, we'll start assigning injustice to the actions of a God who's perfectly just. And then we'll just start treating God like he's other people. And you know what you're doing in that moment? What I'm doing in that moment? We're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Paul addressed that in Romans 1. God has revealed himself to us in the created order. God has revealed himself to us in a sense of a moral compass of right and wrong in our own consciousness. He's offered himself to us in the midst of this obvious brokenness that we see all over the world and in spite of that brokenness which has roots in even our own rebellion against this eternal God we suppress the truth and unrighteousness we choose beer or our jobs or sports or Amazon Prime or Netflix binging or the body of another person and in our actions what we're telling God is I got this I got this and I know better in fact I'm not all that crazy about how you're running stuff down here I know better I mean, I know you, you're the creator. This is, what, this is what God confronts Job with at the, at the end of that narrative. And Job finally just has had enough. I've had people say before, I want to be angry and I want to talk to God honestly, but I don't want to cross the line. And I'm like, read Job. He'll tell you when you've crossed the line. He'll let you know. He loves you. 
give him, give him your worst. He's a big boy. He's got broad shoulders. And when he gets ready to drop the hammer, he'll drop the hammer. With words like, who, who is this who darkens my counsel with words that have no knowledge? That, that had to be quite the cut down. Yeah, it's, it's coming eventually. But that's what we do, right? That's what we do. We choose these things. I know you, I know you created it all. I know you were there in the foundations of the world. I know that my heart doesn't keep it. Well, actually, I may not be fully cognizant of it at a moment if I'm accusing you of injustice. I know my heart keeps beating. I keep sucking in oxygen and pushing out carbon dioxide because you allow it and you declare it to be, and it will not be unless you declare it to be. And I know you're the sovereign creator and sustainer of every atom and molecule on this planet, and I'm just a popcorn fart compared to you but I think I could do this better. I could do this better. When we look at these things and we judge God in that way, this is, I got this, Lord. You, you continue to choose the lesser stuff and then you turn around and blame God for the very things that God is offering to redeem you from and you think it's his fault? Our accusations toward God reveals our wickedness. And all the while, he sends warning after warning after warning in his word, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And it's not a pointing of the finger. It's this. Come to me. You, you can escape this. Come to me. It's an invitation into precisely the kind of relationship we heard about last week. And we respond to it with... This is what John's trying to warn us against before we get to the hard stuff. You have to exchange your partial desire for justice for God's complete desire for justice. And at the base of the human soul, we just don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. And then we get angry. You do this for that, because we have forgotten there is no such thing as little sin because there is no such thing as a little God to sin against. When an infinite, eternal, all-powerful being offers you to himself as a way out of the mess and your response is to go, no thanks, what do you think the result will be? God's wrath is real. And it is right. It is just. His punishment always fits the crime. And the precursor warning in Revelation 15 is that judgment is coming. Everything we're going to cover in the next couple of weeks is unspeakably horrible. And it is coming just as sure as I'm standing in this spot right now. And I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor, when you started this series, you told us that Revelation was not a book of doom and gloom. It sounds like you're about to unload some doom and gloom. I'm not. Come back next week. Well, I promise you, it will not be all doom and gloom. But we got to go here because it reveals to us something of the nature of this God who's beckoning us to himself. And, and, and you really can't hear the good news until you know how bad the bad news is. 
Revelation is a book of hope. Revelation is a book of consummation because it tells us two complementary things. Number one, there is no refuge from this God. We're going to get to a passage later on where we see the great white throne judgment, and one of the things you'll notice is the sea goes away, the clouds go away, the the mountains go away. What's that a picture of? There's nowhere to hide anymore. It's just you and the throne. That day's coming. That day's coming. There's no refuge from your creator. You say, where's the good news in that? Right here. You ready? There is refuge in your creator. There is refuge in this Redeemer who came into this world, who incarnated himself in a body of flesh, who lived a perfect life that neither you nor I were capable or even willing of doing, who gave his life on a cross and bore the wrath of God that was due you and me. Our punishment placed on him, his righteousness given to us so that this God who, yes, pours out his wrath on sin because it's the right thing to do, loves you and offers that to you. There is refuge in him. You need to come get that today if you don't have it already. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clear nature of what your word teaches us. Thank you, Lord, for, for this letter that reveals your nature to us, that reminds us not to treat you like other people because you will not share your glory with any, with anyone else. And yet at the same time, Lord, you, you give this to us because you love us. And the greatest gift you could give us is the gift of yourself. And so we pray that you would forgive us, even those who follow you, for those times that we slip back into those states of mind where we value lesser things and we are tempted to think you unjust. We believe, Lord, just so oftentimes we need you to help us with our unbelief. And we need you to correct our our off-course trajectory. We need you to recenter our souls and recalibrate us around who you really are. And we thank you, Lord, that you've left us instruction just like we've seen today in your word that allows that to happen in our hearts. And so right now, I pray for the Holy Spirit to do his work. Father, would you, in the name of Jesus, convict hearts, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, do what you have purposed to do from the foundation of the world on this cold March day in 2022 and conform souls to your image, redeem souls for your kingdom. And Father, if, there, if we could have some way of of just sharing in the great honor of being able to play a role in that. We will thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor. 
and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.